You're listening to the Afterburn Podcast, episode number 11. Altitude. Altitude. Tower 26 is released to you, runway 411 at 5, clear for takeoff. Sea tide, Altera zero eyes, we're clear for takeoff, clear for the airspace. My guest for today's episode is former Air Force flight surgeon Major Eric Sweller, better known as Knuckles. Let your imagination run wild with that call sign. But he is a former flight surgeon, uh, taking care of a bunch of F 16 pilots out of Shaw Air Force Base, and now he is becoming an orthopedic surgeon. So, big brain on knuckles, but proud to call him a friend and happy to have him on the episode today. We're going to talk all about being a flight doc, what it means, and some stories that go along with that. Before we get rolling today's podcast, just a few admin notes. I'd also like to thank Hangar 24 Craft Brewing out in Redlands, California. They have additional tap rooms in Orange County and Lake Havasu. I'm excited because I work with Hangar 24 now and I absolutely love the brand. I fell in love with it when I flew the Hangar 24 Airfest back in 2018. It's a phenomenal company. It's phenomenal beer. It's good people. I'm excited to see the expansion and where the company is going to be a part of it. I encourage you to swing uh, by one of their tap rooms if you live near one. You can go over to hangar24brewing.com and find out more information or check out their social media, Facebook and Instagram. I'd also like to thank Squadron Posters, again, a company that I just absolutely love. And I've been a customer of theirs for several years. They have upped the game from just making posters to share the adventure and your journey through life. I would encourage you to swing by squadronposters.com and check out their bomber style artwork. It's a really cool way to display, again, your journey. And also, they have metal nose art. So if you want something that looked like it just came off the side of a plane with whatever graphic design you want on there, they can do that. Swing over to squadronposters.com and orders over $59 or more receive a 10% discount with the discount code RAIN10. That's RAIN10. I'd also like to thank Wingman Watches for sponsoring this podcast. Again, another company that I just absolutely love and I love their products. If you're looking to build a custom watch, this is their bread and butter. You can work with their design team to commemorate your journey, your organization, your unit, whatever it might be through a custom watch that's affordable and is high quality. Swing by wingmanwatch.com and you can use the code RAIN10 to receive a discount on any current watch that's on there, or you can mention my name to receive a discount on your group customization order. Mention my name to receive a discount on your group order, or if you see a watch you already love on the site, you can use the code RAIN10 to receive 10% off your watch purchase. And finally, I'd just like to ask if you're enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes that helps the podcast out. And with that being said, let's get into the podcast. You just say a couple words. Couple words. Yeah, that's real nice. Um, again, each one of these it just keeps getting better and better. So <laughs> yeah, no, your audio sounds good. Well, Knuckles, man, I really uh, I'm excited to have you on the podcast. I think people are gonna find it fascinating what your career has been up to this point, what you're doing, because we're going to talk about medicine, which is something I don't know anything about other than it's like, yeah, it's an ibuprofen because that's what you guys always issue us. When we 800 have, milligrams. Yeah, there you go. That'll solve everything. My arm's missing. Here's 800 milligrams of ibuprofen. 
But Knuckles, uh, you're a former flight doc in the Air Force. We've flown together, worked together. Uh, before you're rolling in the podcast, if you just kind of tell the listeners a little about who you are, what you're doing today, and how you got there. Yeah, perfect. Uh, thanks again, Rain, for having me on. I know we've been working to try to get this squared away, and uh, due to scheduling conflicts, we've had to reschedule about four or five times. But yeah, it might be like seven uh, times to include today, <laughs> like no less than twice. So thanks. Maybe seven to nine. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm Eric Schweller. Uh, grew up just outside of Dayton, Ohio, in a small little suburb. Uh, <clears throat> went to college at Hillsdale College, which is in South Central Michigan. Uh, no federal funding to that college, so there was no ROTC. When I got there, played football for four years. Uh, we were Division II uh, NCAA, uh, so that was an awesome experience. And probably I'd say towards the latter half of my high school years, I knew I wanted to get into medicine. Um, so I kind of geared all of my training in med or uh, undergrad to get into medicine, uh, applied my junior year, and I got into the uh, West Virginia School of Osteopathic Medicine, which is down in Lewisburg, West Virginia. Uh, so I completed that in 2014, and then I did a one-year internship, basically a traditional rotating internship where you dabble in a little bit of everything in medicine just before you would either go to a, a full-up residency or potentially go out and practice as a general practitioner. In college, I applied for the HPSP scholarship, which is the Health Profession Scholarship Program. It's one of the, the awesome opportunities the Air Force provides where they will fund your professional education. Uh, for a service commitment on the back end of things, downsides to it that I didn't know from the get go were that when you go when you go to apply for residency, you have to apply through the Air Force first, and they have to give you like the the grace of you can go do whatever you want to do, or we're going to tell you what to do. There's always uh, fine print. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I went through that application process and got uh, spun off to the traditional rotating internship year. Um, as a civilian. So I did that where my wife was doing her pediatric residency. And then the next year I reapplied through the whole process. And that's when I got my orders that said, you're going to be a flight surgeon and that you're going to be tracking to Shaw Air Force Base with the 79th Fire Squadron with the Tigers. So for me, I was like, sweet, don't really know what that means exactly, but <laughs> you know, let's go do it. And, um, and, and, yep. And so then I showed up to Shaw Air Force Base and, uh, on July 7th, it was the, or July 8th, it was the day after the midair down in, down by Charleston. I yeah. remember that like clean as day. Cause I'm watching the news going, huh, that's where my base is. Yeah. Um, and it was just really wild to walk onto base the next day and everything was like a ghost town there, like quiet. Cause they did a down day the following day. Um, and then, uh, is the shooters were just getting ready to head out for red flag. I think cause yep. they were gearing up for their deployment. So um, everything was just a, a ghost town and I was just trying to figure out like, where do I go for the first check-in spot and how do I not mess up day one? Yeah. That's, um, that's crazy. And yeah. I think probably different, you know, for a pilot showing up to Shaw to go fly an F-16. Yeah. You went through pilot training, then you go out to the B course, uh, and you've been with probably a certain set of people for at least nine months. And then you're going to have a couple buddies who are already at the squadron flying as well as some guys are showing up. So you kind of have, I would, for a lack of a better phrase, like you have someone to hold your hand there to kind of like help you and point you out. But it sounds like you just literally rolled into like the base and said, Hey, I'm new here. Where yeah, do I go? I mean, so luckily we had Dribble Funk. So uh, Brian Funk, who's longtime 
active duty guy who's now working as a GS uh, at Shaw. And he's basically like the godfather for flight docs at Shaw. Like he will guide you in, make sure you got everything squared away and basically gives you like a, here's where to go on base and how to get there and what to do. We'll backpedal a little bit. What, yep. what made you want to go into the air force and pursue medicine in the air force? Cause obviously a lot of different avenues you could have gone down, but what, what pushed you that direction? Yeah. So for me, um, you know, I, I grew up, uh, my parents, nobody was really in the service. My, both my grandfathers were served during world war two. Uh, my one grandfather was a B 24 navigator, um, in the European theater. Um, so pretty cool to like talk with him about stories. And then, uh, he did a full career with the army air corps back in the, the day. And then, uh, he transitioned over to like the army medical side and like public health. <clears throat> and then my other grandfather was a dentist for, uh, three and a half years or four years. He was in, he was in that time when they did the fast tracking through college and yeah. professional training. Um, so he actually never graduated with an undergrad degree. Uh, they fast tracked <laughs> him three years and then he went to dental school and, uh, he was a dentist. So, um, it was pretty wild to hear that story from my grandma. But I think for me, it was just always a desire to serve the country, uh, in, in some fashion or one capacity or the other. But I always wanted to serve in a function of, I wanted to be a physician. I, I knew I wanted to do that. And so, uh, in high school, I did some research of like, how can I, make this happen and, and do what I want to do, uh, and still serve the country. Uh, I actually got a letter that said that you're not fit for service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <that was> <laughs> and so I called my recruiter and I go, Hey man, like I've played four years of college football. Like I, I'm not sure what's going on here. Like why, why can't I serve the air force? And I think we had to like write a, a letter to the Air Force Surgeon General just to get the approval to go to MAPS. And so we finally got a letter that said, yes, you can go to MAPS. And um, so I got that. So that put me on uh, a year pause of like the whole process um, because you had to basically start all over yeah. again. Um, and so, yeah, I went through that and then I got in during my first year of medical school. Some themes I hear there, right? Like it's a pretty long-term goal with a lot of like hurdles to go overcome. Uh, yeah. which translates, I think, to any kind of profession you want to pursue, which as I talk through the podcast, like that theme right there, I think is applicable to so many people, no matter what they're interested in. Like, again, long-term goal, there's gonna be setbacks. You got to push through and persevere yeah. if you want to go out there and do it. The uh, interesting thing. So it's funny. I don't know why you're like unfit for duty, but I know you're a pretty fit dude. There was a guy in my RGC unit who was just like jacked. Um, and this is right about the time the Air Force changed the PT test to include, okay. to include yeah. a waist measurement. Oh, yeah, man. The guy, I mean, again, he was just like huge and just like ripped. But his waist was like 36 inches, which was like over the limit. Or back then, I think it was like a massive like point reduction. Like there was no way you could score like anything but like an 85. Uh, uh -huh. So it's just kind of ridiculous to see how, how things like progress. I think we're slowly getting better, you know, but you're like, yeah. Seriously, this is what this is the dude you want in the Air Force. He's just going to go out there and, you know, kill whatever you need killed. Uh, but yeah, no. Yeah. Did well, and on the same lines, I, when I met my recruiter the first time, we were getting ready to start my senior year of college football. And he's like, So how much do you weigh? And I was like, As defensive lineman and a punter, and I weighed 265. And he's like, You think you can cut some of that? And I go, Not until the fall, like, yeah. not, not until winter, like when the season's over. He goes, all right, I think maybe we can like 
finagle away where they'll do a neck waist measurement and do like the deduction component of things where they'll, you know, come up with your BMI based off of that rather than your height and weight. I was like, okay. Yeah. What, whatever you just said, that sounds fine. Let's do that. <laughs> it is funny, but I did see that just recently the air force got rid of the height requirements. I know that doesn't like, I haven't read all the details. I know they're going to be for being a pilot. There are going to be restrictions oh, okay. still. But I think before it was just a blanket, like you must fit between these numbers. Yeah. And if it, if you aren't there, we're not even considering you. So again, I haven't read it. I think that just came out like a day or two ago. Okay. Yeah. They're changing things. So maybe, yeah, man, I think they're in the process of changing a lot of things to, uh, make some tracking a little bit easier, but then I think they're also recognizing that there are certain things that maybe they were, uh, thrown out the door that, you know, they are maybe backpedaling on a little saying and going, eh, it's not as risky as we initially thought maybe it was. Uh, now kind of fast forward and you, uh, graduate college, what is cot and when did you go to cot? Yeah. So they, so cot is commission officers training. So in our program, you actually commission before you go to training. So you show up day one at training and you're a second Lieutenant, um, which is mind boggling, uh, at the same, <laughs> as, at the same point as it is like a shock and awe factor, because you show up to, Maxwell Air Force Base in middle of nowhere. Well, not really middle of nowhere, but Montgomery, Alabama. But it is training for your professional uh, degree programs, primarily your physicians, your nurses, your optometrists, uh, your lawyers, and uh, your chaplains. I think that's the the main grouping of them all. I buy that. And so you show up and it's a uh, grueling six weeks. Someone has to do it. <laughs> uh, actually, what was it? Maybe it was eight weeks. I don't know. We showed up, I think, right after Labor Day and we got home right before 4th of July. So, no, I guess six to six to seven weeks. Yeah. And, and basically, it's learning your customs, courtesies, like just learning how to be an officer. Nice. So, uh, jumping back into it, you show up to Shaw and you're going to the 79th Fighter Squadron. Loco. Yeah. Double down. <laughs> Yeah. Arguably the second best. So I'll give you that. What was it like rolling into the squadron and what did your first year look like as a flight doc? And what, yeah, what is a flight doc for those people who don't understand? Yeah. Uh, that was something that I figured out, uh, pretty much in the first like four, four months of being there. So I showed up and, um, I met our squadron commander. So it was hyper annually at the time. Um, and he pretty much just turned to me and he goes, dude, you need to go do your training. Uh, and then when you come back, like I've got stuff ready to go for you. Once you know what you're actually doing. Um, he said, until then I'll see you when you get back. And so literally I went up to the med group, uh, got my check-in list, like started doing some in-processing stuff and then had to learn how to get orders generated, <clears throat> which that took like three days to figure that process out. Yeah. Three full days. <laughs> Um, and so literally I showed up and like, I, sh I think I showed up on the eighth and the 12th, I was on my way to TDY up to Wright Patterson Air Force Base for the aerospace medicine training classes that they have the courses. So AMP 101, 201, 202, and 301. And that's where they, they teach you how to issue ibuprofen for everything. <laughs> no, you learned that in medical school. <laughs> okay. All right. Just making sure. <laughs> and so, you know, for me, it was learning that you're, so you're the primary care physician for the squadron. Uh, so basically, it, it, kind of like concierge medicine in that you are at the, the beckoning call of the squadron 
wherever they need to go, wherever they need, um, you go with them. So the majority of the TDYs, you go with the squadron uh, to be their medical element while they're there uh, and basically help them get whatever they need if medical is needed beyond just what you can provide out of a, a medication box that you bring with you. Paired with it, you know, responsibilities include also taking care of basically anybody on flight status. And that's where the, the AMP really kicks in is it teaches you what your limitations are, medication limitations because of impact to the potential to uh, withstand like G-forces and things like that. So in that training, you learn about the in-flight emergencies. So for us, like in the F-16, the EPU is a, a big one that we have to know about um, as far as how to manage, you know, if it fires, if it misfires, or if somebody doesn't know if it has or hasn't fired. So that was, you know, part of our training as well as while you're there, you get some in-flight training as well, some, some instructed time uh, behind the stick. Um, so we got to go hop up in a Cirrus SR-22, a little sporty um, single prop and yeah. uh, fly around. And for me, that was the first time I'd ever experienced like flying in a all plane like that. Um, and to be honest, like up until that point, I was like, man, I never want to fly in a plane like that. That is night and day from like what your experience was to like going to fly right? in F-16. <laughs> like, holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you go up there and you learn all the process. So how to do an initial flying class physical, how to do waivers. Uh, uh, they do like your chamber, your initial chamber certification there. Uh, it was a pretty wild experience. Um, and so that, that was pretty cool. It's a little weird. And then you watch and there's like a guy in our class who was in his fifties and he went for the max time that they would allow him to be hypoxic underneath of that, like at that flight level that they they simulate <laughs> he's just like nailing it like every question answered cold like no issues at all we're all like man what is wrong with that guy like something's not right there smoked a lot of cigarettes or something <laughs> it's funny when i went through the chamber we actually had a guy who similar story the oldest dude he was like returned active duty he must have been like late 50s uh and i remember same deal he just sat there and they kept raising the altitude raising the altitude everyone like bows out or whatever is getting hypoxic and he just sat there like, well, this is really impressive. Turns out he was hypoxic. So, you know, <laughs> he had to repeat the chamber ride, but, you know, <laughs> neither here nor there. It was, it was a lesson yeah. learned, but that's something I'm curious yeah. to tie into. So actually I had, a, I had two rapid decompressions at 43,000 feet. Yeah. So this is one that I played off, but can you explain what high altitude flying, like what are the risks flying around an F-16 or any fighter or any airplane for that matter up at that altitude? And all of a sudden you have a rapid decompression. So the cabin altitude goes to 43,000 feet. Right. Yeah. So, uh, it all turns into like the internal pressure versus the external pressure. So, um, you know, when you take off and, and just like commercial airliners, most of them are able to pressurize their cabin to what, like 8,000 feet or something along those yeah. lines. Um, and that's why they don't require you to, to use oxygen when you fly in those commercial airliners, um, because they're able to pressurize it to a, a level that is, you know, enough oxygen concentration to allow you to have basically no impact that you can notice. The chamber fly was describing like the old, older guy in my group where is that insidious, you know, he knew obviously, right. Cause that was the exercise of raising the, the cabin altitude, but he didn't recognize his hypoxia symptoms for yep. my, for my first one. I remember my visor fogged up. I'm like at 1.4 mock. I'm at 43,000 feet, just cruising sending it yeah just gonna i'm just gonna wreck someone's house that's that was my plan that day and uh 
I like, yeah, my visor kind of like fogged up. I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. And I touched it. I'm like, oh, that's condensation. So I looked down at the cabin pressure and like right when I looked at it, it was like the chamber flight when they do the rapid decompression. And it's just like poof and you're in a cloud. I was like, well, that's not good. So I just yeah. rolled, rolled and pulled and just thought skinny as I went diving through a couple formations yeah. just to get low. And I remember seeing 43, like as I was doing that, I looked glance, I saw 43 on the cabin altitude. I was like, well, that's not good. Just stay awake, <laughs> you know? But I try, yeah. I try to play it off. Like, and I got back to Shaw. There's obviously a little bit more to that story, but uh, Gerbil met me at the end of the runway, you know, and uh, yeah. checked me out, make sure I was good. I was like, yeah, I feel fine. And I'm going home that day, told my wife about it. I was like, yeah, like I'm good. No big deal. And everything was fine until the next morning when he called me like at 6 a.m. to make sure I was still alive. And that's when that's when Anna knew I downplayed it a little bit. But hypoxia or, you know, hypoxia is no joke. And that altitude is no joke. We've definitely lost a few guys uh, who've lost consciousness of the altitude. Because basically it's the same. The same thing happens as what happens with uh, like divers and getting the bends. The worst is if you can, if you have like a neuro, like neuro symptoms with it. So gait instabilities, vision changes, just like speech changes, anything that would be connected with the, the brain processing function. Those guys all get sent and they get to go dive in a chamber to basically bring them back to get the nitrogen levels out and things like that. Uh, so tying in to like what I'm doing now. So now I'm in my orthopedic residency um, just outside of Detroit, Michigan at Garden City Hospital. And I was sitting in on a lecture the probably second month I was here. Uh, and it was the sports medicine conference. And it was the University of Florida's team doc uh, who was talking. Uh, and he hopped up and he basically was telling you, talking about what the, the role of the flight doc or not the flight doc, but the team doc was for, for sports teams. Um, and you know, he, he tied in these three things. He said, a leader provides service and sacrifice. And I thought it was very fitting in that you've got to serve the group you're with if you want to be a leader. And if you're serving them, you have to sacrifice for them. Um, and I just thought, you know, that that was so true and that like that probably put the best piecing of it all together for a flight doc is that you're you're going to make sacrifices because you have to build the trust of these guys that are already a unit. And you are the outsider coming in. And by the way, like you hold a pink card of basically saying like, hey, man, you're not good to fly today. And I think a lot of pilots fear that because they don't they think that flight docs are just there to take away their flying privileges fun police paired with i'm pretty sure every pilot in the air force is locked in that flight docs only do like rectal exams that's not true (laughs) how'd you get your call sign (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) yeah no that's true too i didn't really think of that aspect and riot who is uh, my flight doc the first two years in the in the gamblers and then does Right, still a good friend. He's gonna give me grief for him not being on the podcast first because he wants to be on the podcast. But right, anytime you want to do it, let me know. Um, <laughs> I think but, he's doing his like second residency already. I think he's. I think he did like internal medicine ER. It's wild. I still, I still give him grief, and I gave him a lot of grief, but I have nothing but respect for Riot and really, I mean, any flight doc. But that's true. Coming into that environment, like what I mentioned before, like hey, you know, pilots are showing up. It's you're kind of like it's a known quantity. Like you got people you know, you got 
you're used to the squadron operations. So it takes a lot to walk into a group and then kind of force your, not force yourself, but you got to show up and you got to be there and you got to be one of the guys and integrate and overcome some of those stigmas because yep. most guys sit in the squadron, like you don't know who the new flight talk is going to be and what they're going to be like. It is. And I think, I think too, right. Is it, it's knowing the system, like because I think a lot of pilots don't know how all of the medical side of things work within the air force. And 100% some of us as providers, I mean, when you first show up, you're like, how do I make this happen? And you know, it's having good mentors, but also those that know the system well to be able to provide you the information. And I think if you have a mentor and you've got a few people that are there to help uh, guide you in the right direction, like, man, you can, you can hit it out of the park and you can take somebody's nightmare and make it a smooth sailing process. Like one of the funniest was, is so uh, we had the British exchange pilot in our squadron while I was there. Uh, <laughs> and I got a, got a call from, I got a call from Carney and he was like, Hey man, we're in Canada. And I was like, yeah, I'm down in Sumter. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, can you, can you call Scripson up here in Canada? And I was like, I'm pretty sure I can't, Carney. Like, my <laughs> license doesn't cross the border. And he goes, okay. And he's like, well, all right. And I guess that they had had an issue where somebody had to see a doc. And, you know, obviously, if you're not insured in that country, like, you're paying a, a premium dollar to, to get an appointment. And so I just called up the nearest pharmacy there. And I was like, hey, you know, what can we do to help? this person out and pharmacists up there have a little bit more rain with their license. And so they can actually take care of some minor things and see it. And so just making that, you know, 10 minute phone call, saved them a significant amount of money probably and allowed them to enjoy their time a little bit better rather than having to wait to like go see a doc up in Canada, just like everything I've kind of hedged on. And I think, you know, a common theme that you have with everybody you've had on the podcast is, is it's take what you got, hit it out of the park and then take the next step forward. Once the doors open or once you're ready to make the next move, how do I make the best of what I've got in front of me? And how do I become the best? Like, you know, what can, what can I do to be the best? And that was my goal is to, in all honesty, my goal when I showed up to Shaw was I want to be the best flight doc that any of my guys have ever had. And I want them to walk away and I want them, I want them to leave Shaw going, man, I wish Knuckles was still here. Or, man, I wish I still had him as my flight back because I think that speaks to, you know, what you did for him and, and helping people out. Yeah, that's spot on. I think if you show up anywhere and you don't want to be the best, then kind of what are you doing and what is the point of you being there would be my right. take on it because you're just wasting, wasting your time if you don't want to be the best. That would be a perfect note to end on, but I don't want to end there because I want to, <laughs> I want to um, kind of hear a little bit about what you're doing now and then what, yeah. what's, what's the long range plan for you? Yeah, basically day one med school, I was like, I want to be an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, I want to work on bones. I want to fix broken bones. I want to get athletes back out, running around, get you know people to their best functional outcome because I think it's one of the areas of medicine that you can truly fix the problem and get somebody almost 100%, if not 100%, back to where they were prior to the injury. So luckily, I got into an orthopedic surgery residency. Uh, so it's five years of residency. Spend your first year as what we call like an intern. You, you have set rotations basically each month or 
uh, every four weeks, depending on where you're at, you are designated to a service. So whether that's working in the floors, so like internal medicine type things, uh, or if it's doing specialty things like surgery, orthopedics, hand. Uh, and so your first year is just kind of a blend of a bunch of things to make you a well-rounded physician. And then your years two through five are more specific to actual orthopedics. My first intern year down in West Virginia, they put in the work restriction. So it was like, you can't average more than 80 hours a week over the course of four weeks. So you can have one week where you work like a hundred hours a week, but then the next like three weeks you have to work somewhere in the ballpark of like 60. So it's pretty wild that it wasn't until like 2014 that they were putting like work restrictions on the residency training. Um, especially talking to some of the pilots where they're like, dude, I have a 12 hour duty day. That's it. And, and then I have to have time off. And it's like, okay. Like there, there were times not, not when I was active duty because it was different. We didn't have a hospital there. But there have definitely been times where it's you show up at 6 a.m. and you're done at midnight like the next day and you crash at the hospital for four or five hours. You wake up at 4 a.m., you start rounding on patients, and the next thing you know, it's 9 p.m. and you're headed home and you're like, holy cow, like where did the day go and, and how did that just happen? Isn't there something science with like lack of sleep and like... <laughs> equivalent to like blood alcohol content or something like that. I don't Yeah, I think it's like if you're up for I don't want to say it's like if you're up for 18 hours straight, like you you get to the equivalent of like like over the legal limit or at the legal limit roughly. Yeah, that's cra- I mean that, that's crazy hours and I think yeah, flying wise, I definitely know when I'm getting fatigued and like I can tell I'm starting to make mistakes. If I was yeah. staying up for 36 or 48 hours or whatever just getting like yeah. Low quality sleep. Like it just would not, it would not end well. I think it, you yeah. can push through anything short term, but my gosh. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, they, they do have restrictions in there in place and safe nets and they've done studies to figure out whether or not the restrictions are actually changing or decreasing safety issues. But, you know, I mean, it's those things where they teach you to be extremely ready and prepared for the unexpected and how to manage it. So, and I know you're not a virologist. Do you think we're cresting the hill and like things are going to get better? Like, obviously I think this thing is going to be around for forever and people are always going to get sick by it. Yeah. Is this, <laughs> what's new normal? What, what, what does Knuckles think about all this? Let's put you on record. Yeah. Oh, great. Perfect. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I will, I will hallmark it with a big asterisk that no, I'm not a virologist and no, I'm not a professional in like public health and the epidemiology side of things. But I, I will say one, yes, I agree. I think it's going to be around uh, for a while in the sense of it very well could be like a flu type situation where it comes in waves every year and, you know, they, they might develop a vaccine for it. That's going to be similar to the flu where, you know, hopefully it provides you some better protection, but it may not be like a hundred percent protection, uh, like what the flu shot is, you know, are we crested? I think based on numbers, we're seeing everything starting to play out based on at least all the data that we're being provided with. Um, I can say like, I know at my hospital, we're, we're definitely far better off than what we were. You know, everything is evidence-based in our world. That's the, the big buzzword is evidence-based medicine, where you have research to back what you're doing. This is literally the art of medicine, which is why medicine is an art. It's you're trying it based off of the best information you have that supports what you need to do, um, but you don't have the research backing it. And so 
you're kind of seeing medicine go back to where it kind of all really started from is that they trialed and aired some things and they're like, Hey, that worked. Um, yeah. and, and so that's what I think you're going to run into for a little while. Um, probably going to see some surges here and there, especially as things start to kind of get more relaxed, but you know, it's one of those things, there's really no telling what exactly is going to happen and, and how it's going to play out. But I do think that, yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're going to run into a surge and I think you're going to see evolution in the treatment protocol. And I think you're going to, see some sort of a, a vaccine eventually hit the market. It's just a matter of when. And Yeah. I think this is one situation where your time in a fighter squadron would really pay off because you can take the standard fighter pilot answer of it depends and apply <laughs> it to so much here and just share with your colleagues that I think it's just blanket coverage. Like, well, it depends. Yeah. So there's yeah, so much, but exactly. Thank for what you guys are doing, especially now all the, the medical professionals out there. Like this is just such a, it's unprecedented. No one's ever seen it. Anything like this. Uh, yeah. And there's so many unknowns and fears that go along with it. So thanks for what you and uh, all your colleagues are doing to try and keep everyone healthy and safe. Before yeah. we get kind of uh, wrapping up here, I wanted to say that you got any kind of like parting shots, words of advice or anything else you think would be really beneficial for the listeners to hear besides uh, it depends. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think honestly the, the biggest things are that is the, Flight surgeon itself uh, within a fighter squadron can be a great asset. Um, if if you take what you have and you apply it and you do everything you can do to utilize it to the best benefit of your squadron, because you got to break down the barriers from the get-go. Um, that, that's one of the biggest things that's tough to get into. It's tough to get into the squadron and feel like you're actually part of the squadron um, because you are isolated and usually the squadron commander is your boss. Uh, and he pretty much tells you like, just do medicine and don't mess up what our game plan is as far as flying. And you're like, okay. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, I think it's just, it's being a good person. Like look out, look out for the guys as if you'd look out for your family, um, treat them as if they're your family. And before you know it, like they are family. Uh, and I can't tell you how many guys that I have great relationships with that I, catch up with on a regular basis that were, you know, tigers with me. And you're like, it, it's as if you never left Shaw, even though everybody's left. Um, and, you know, with that, I think it's very much back to that kind of leader is you're a leader because you serve and you serve because you sacrifice. Yeah. I think if you do those things and it doesn't just apply to, you know, flight medicine, I think that applies to everything. Um, you know, in life is if, if you want to be a leader, like you've got to serve. And if you serve, you're going to, you've got to sacrifice, um, to, to get there. And I think those are things that, you know, if you apply those to every facet of life, like, man, you're going to hit, you're going to hit home runs left and right. And people are going to sit there and look at you and go, this is an awesome dude. Like I want this dude on my team. Uh, and so I think it's just, you know, take what you got, uh, you're not always going to get the cards you want dealt. Uh, when you get the cards you are dealt, take them, run with them, make the best of it, do the best with what you got, and wait for your opportunities to open up. Because if you if you're driven to do things and you're driven and you want to do something, like the doors may close at certain times, but you'd be amazed how many times those doors open back up uh, periodically throughout. And I think. Like in my life, I've seen that so many times where I was told I couldn't serve in the Air Force and then I served. 
Um, you know, I was told I couldn't do orthopedics and then the door opened to go do this flight medicine, which was a opportunity second to none, um, pr- predominantly with just being in a fighter squadron of one, like I never thought I'd be sitting behind, a an engine like that sitting, sorry, on an engine like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, man, like just the opportunities to be there and then to have my family be able to experience that with me. It's just awesome. Uh, and then, you know, to, to finish it all off with the opportunity to go into the residency that I wanted to do, like, I, I can't be more thankful for my time for the people that I've, you know, met and, uh, and just being able to do that to, to finally get here. It's been an awesome experience. And I mean, a lot of props to you guys, like as pilots, like you guys, you know, I think it's, it's very easy for people, uh, in the military to see that you guys just show up and you fly and you go home. Like there is so much more behind that than, than what people know. And I think flight doc gets the unique experience of seeing that, like all of the preparation you guys do for your flights and all of the training that you guys do just to go fly like a single sortie. Um, there's so much more behind it to get to that point. And then for me to like watch those dudes, like I watched, you know, lieutenants show up and then they like, I was at, I was with the Tigers for four years and literally watched some guys show up as lieutenants straight out of the B course who left Shaw and they were IPs. And I mean, to watch a dude grow like that, that there's very few opportunities I think in your life to watch somebody grow in that fashion. And I think the opportunity to see that so young in my life is just awesome because you see somebody coming in and barely knowing anything to him being the wisdom for these guys who just showed up. No doubt. Um, and, and so it's just awesome to see that. And I think that the the fighter squadron and, and the, the air force definitely breeds that where you get the opportunity to watch that because there are a lot of opportunities put in front of you to take the hammer and run. And if you do it and you do it well, like people know, um, if you do it and you don't do so hot, people know, but they give you another opportunity. Uh, and I think that's the thing is you got to know that you're going to fumble a little bit, but pick it back up and go with it because um, you'll get there. It just may take you a couple tries. Yeah, got to keep at it. Well, Knuckles, really appreciate you coming on the podcast tonight. It was awesome being able to fly because you and I flew. It was like your last day. Right. Or day before. Yeah. You turned in my yeah. paperwork, which is really yep. cool. I turned my paperwork in the next day and uh, I got my final wave goodbye and uh, <laughs> off I went. So I'll definitely uh, share some of those videos on uh, Instagram oh, yeah. so people can see that. But uh, again, <laughs> you shared the one clip already. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is, I got a, I only got like 15 minutes of footage. So uh, there's plenty of plenty of interaction. It's <laughs> a short, short flight, but it feels like forever. <laughs> right. Oh, well, no, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast again. It was great catching up and uh, thanks for taking the time to be on here. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rand. Appreciate it. And best of luck with the podcast, man. It's great. Listen. And some of the guys you brought on, man, you listen to stories and you're like, holy cow, like that's awesome. So you got a lot of great people. And I, mean, I think that speaks to you is, uh, you know, you, you've put yourself uh, around these guys and surround yourself with great people. So good job. I'm, I'm very fortunate. So I really appreciate that. Thanks for listening in today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Again, wherever you're listening, hit subscribe. And if you can, leave me a rating and review over on iTunes. That definitely helps out. Until next time, don't bring a week.